In a new age world filled with delusions and wish fulfillment by morons in need of attention, renowned experiencers of high strangeness and podcasters Jeffrey Ritzman and Jeremy Vaney received invitations to a tropical paradise getaway called Paratopia. Little did they know, it was the same type of new age spiritual retreat they've been avoiding all their lives. It's time for the feedback. I mean, the mailbag. <laughs> Now's the time on Sprockets when we dance. I'm going to sit here and eat chips, and Jeff's going to read listener mail. Hooray! Yeah. <sighs> You're not going to be crunching all through this, are you? No, why would I do that? I wouldn't do that to you. <laughs> Go on. Read. <clears throat> so, anyway. <laughs> oh. Three, two, one. Our first email here is from Chris D. Chris D says about the Emma Woods tapes episode 57. Holy fuck. Uh, Not sure what to think about this episode. My head's about to explode. As did ours, Chris. As did ours. Uh, Let's look up a little further here. This is going to be really hard to do. Well, so far, this is worth it. I yeah. have one from Anna. I'm a little late listening to this week's episode, but it's superb. What you say at the end about sexism had me clapping. Take care, Anna. Well, Anna, thanks. Unfortunately, that isn't the last episode we did. It was a couple episodes back. Leave it to a woman to get that wrong. No? Nothing? Oh. <laughs> Here we have one from Jay Slattery. Check out Emma Wood's website. The chick is nuts. She credits the slightest oddity with her own narcissistic specialness. The tapes were mangled. I've heard Jacob speak, and he talks very sensibly. Oh, and she's bipolar. Just read her rants. Wow, Jay Slattery. What are you, a freaking psychologist or what? (laughs) Really? (laughs) Oh, my God. Needless to say, that was a, a episode 57 comment for Ever Woods. Well, he has a point, just not in that letter. Yeah, he's got a point, all right, top of his head. This is so hard to do. Maybe we shouldn't do this this week. I thought we had more than this. Well, Jeff, that went well. Anyway, everybody, see you next week. We're not leaving that in. <laughs> we're leaving some of that in. No, we're not. That's ridiculous. Paratopia. If you've been watching Monster Quest at all for the last uh, couple of weeks, they've been running a show on the Flatwoods Monster. Uh, And so we have with us the lead investigator, 
who's spent what, Frank, over 15 years? Uh, closer to 20 now, Jeremy. 20 years. Frank Ficino, uh, who you saw in the Monster Quest special or <clears throat> TV show. Um, and so we've asked Frank to lay out the the actual story of the Flatwoods monster and to also now and then interject the truth from what Monster Quest said. Because some of the things they they got wrong, and it's not any conspiratorial thing, it's just that, you know, when you're pressed for time and when you're catering to a broad audience that includes children, <laughs> uh, you leave out some of the horror details. Um, so, Frank, why don't you bring us through the Flatwoods Monster case, and then Jeff and I will bombard you with questions. Uh, let me start uh, first, uh, guys. Uh, let me jump back into 1952. What was going on in 52? 52 was a record year for UFO reports that were sent to Project Blue Book. And Project Blue Book was at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and the intelligence officers there were in charge with the investigation and evaluation of those reports. Well, throughout the years um, that Project Blue Book was in existence, the uh, year of 1952 had 1,501 reports, and 303 of those reports were actually unknowns. And during the summer of 52, we have a record high amount of UFO sightings. There was 1,134 reports sent during June, July, August, and September. Now, September had 124 reports. That was the month in the year of the Flatwoods Monster incident that occurred on September 12, 1952. Now, what a lot of people don't realize is that there was an actu- actually a massive UFO flap that occurred on September 12th. And the Flatwoods Monster incident was more towards the tail end of the story of what actually happened that day. On that day, we have 21 hours of sustained UFO sightings that occurred over 11 states throughout the United States. Nine were eastern states. What I did is I started looking into some of the Project Blue Book documents. Uh, I got some magazine articles, tons of newspaper articles that talked about all of these different uh, UFOs that were seen. Uh, they They were called... Uh, meteors, uh, crashing planes, things on fire. They were reported to the Pentagon, Air Force bases throughout the United States, airports, local and state police departments, newspapers. So the country was bombarded by uh, all of these UFOs throughout this time. And the Flatwoods Monster incident actually occurred right towards the tail end of this uh, UFO flap that occurred that day. That's sort of the um, the background of 1952. So what specifically happened during the Flatwoods Monster case? Okay, what I did is I got uh, maps from all over the United States. And uh, I, I had tons of them. And I had uh, regional maps, topographical maps, aeronautical maps, and I pinpointed all the locations of where these UFO sightings took place. And uh, I plotted points throughout all of these different states, and I started connecting the dots. And um, I had 102 locations where of these plotted points throughout the country where all of these sightings took place. And I basically connected the dots of the locations. 
and I, I had the times, flight path, uh, trajectories. I knew what direction these UFOs were flying in. So it took me over 10 years to put together a master map. And this was a map that was pieced together. Uh, I got it at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. And uh, I plotted all of these points, connected the dots. And from that point, I figured where these things were flying. I had directional headings. And Flatwoods was the hub of where most of these uh, trajectories ended up ultimately. And um, I put together a timeline and had all of these flight paths. And I found out that Project Blue Book had actually extensively recorded all of these different uh, sightings. And ultimately, the Project Blue Book uh, evaluation for the, the report all these reports of what was seen that night was disclosed as a single fireball meteorite. Uh, it was seen for five to six seconds at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The New York Times reported this ball of fire as um, the flame over Washington. And Blue Book <clears throat> extensively covered and went into this particular story. Well, there's no way that a single meteor with um, a duration of five to six seconds flying at 27 miles per second could account for 21 hours of sustained sightings. Mm -hmm. So what we have here is a massive cover-up of events that happened for almost a full day on September 1252. Ultimately, one of these uh, crafts made an emergency landing in Flatwoods. And uh, this is where the beginning of the Flatwoods Monster story began. So that's, that's uh, a synopsis, uh, a background of what happened. That bring, that'll bring us up to speed of um, what was going on that day. And did people assume it was a monster that they saw, or did they tie it into the UFO sightings uh, happening at the time or, or anything like that? The people in, in the Flatwoods area? Yeah. I mean, did they go alien, or did they go, oh, my God, monster? I mean, what, what was – how did flat was, how did, how did monster come about? Okay, let me tell you what happened. Let's go back a couple steps. When I discovered that this UFO had flown over Washington, the flame over Washington, I followed its flight path trajectory west. It was flying west. It was flying uh, certain points of its uh, flight path. It was a treetop level. This thing was flying under radar. Um, it flew over Washington, continued west, flew over Virginia, and it was sighted by an airplane, a private airplane pilot saw this thing. It flew by his craft. It continued west. It flew into West Virginia. It flew over the area of northern Braxton County. It followed the flight paths through most of the area. When it reached northern Braxton County, it turned south, which a meteor would not do. We know that much. And it flew towards the area of Flatwoods. Flatwoods is the geographical center of the state. There are no Air Force bases um, within the area. Okay, so it was pretty safe area for this thing to touch down and make an emergency landing. It flew into the town of Flatwoods. And it went over an area uh, where there was a school playground. 
And it was about dusk, and uh, there was a whole bunch of local Flatwoods kids playing on this elementary school playground. The object flew over the playground where the boys were playing. That was shown in the, the documentary there, the, the Monster Quest. And what it did is it made a 45-degree angle turn again, and it flew across the main road through town, and it went above a mountaintop on the Bailey Fisher Farm, the back point of the property. It stopped in midair. Now, this thing was on fire. It was flaming. It was oval-shaped. Okay, and as it disappeared above the tree lines, it settled down towards the ground. Well, the kids on the playground saw this thing. They thought it was a meteor. They um, they weren't thinking flying saucer. It wasn't a saucer, first of all. It was oval-shaped. It, uh, basically, uh, it was like a greenish color with flames coming off of it. It wasn't a disc. It almost uh, looked like a giant eggplant. This thing was huge. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that type of shape, kind of um, egg-shaped. As it settled down, all the boys got excited. They wanted to go up there, and they wanted to see uh, what had landed and get pieces of this thing that touched down with that. They thought it was a meteor. Nobody had ever seen anything this close, and most people have never seen a meteor that was that close. Well, what the boys didn't realize is that a meteor, had it been a meteor, would have made a sonic boom, being that close to the Earth. And meteors don't make 45-degree angle turns and maneuver. This craft was also seen by an adult named Jack Davis. I interviewed uh, Mr. Davis before he passed away. He was at a different uh, point in town, so his perspective was a little bit different. He saw this thing a little bit closer. He thought it was an airplane that was on fire until he saw the way it was maneuvering and basically it stopped in midair and then dropped to the ground. And he saw an illumination throughout the area of this thing glowing. And the boy saw it, ran up towards the area, and they went to the home of Mrs. Kathleen May two of the boys in the group, that was their mom. And we have Freddie May, who was on Monster Quest, and uh, his brother, Edison. Now, they ran into the house, screaming and yelling something had landed up on the back of the farm. The May residence borders the farm, okay? What happened is there was a 17... Uh, I'd say 18-year-old, Gene Lemon. He was a West Virginia National Guard member. He was a cousin of the Mays. Uh, a bunch of the kids got scared. They didn't want to go up there. It was starting to get dark. It's quite a, a scary farm. Back in the day, it was quite overgrown. And um, it, the sun is setting a little more. By the time the whole group gathers, a bunch of the kids split and went in different directions. And there was ultimately eight known witnesses that were reported who had went up onto the farm. I've been told by some of the locals that where there was more kids that were involved that went up a little bit later towards the tail end of this, this whole encounter. Mm -hmm. But we do have eight known witnesses. They were Kathleen May, Gene Lemon, Neil Nunley, he was 14 years old, Teddy Neal, he was 13, Eddie May was 13, Fred May was 11, 
Ronald Shaver, 10, and then we have Tommy Heyer. He was six years old. He was not playing football with the boys up there. He was hanging out in the neighborhood. He joined the group. There was a large collie dog that was uh, belonged to one of the neighbors. This dog joined the group and went ahead. Jean Lemon and Kathleen May, who we have, she was 32 years old, the mom, they were both carrying flashlights. They didn't have the flashlights on at this point because they didn't need them. It was still light enough for them to see. They proceeded up the hill and they reached the border of the farm. Now, um, I'm going to give you guys a, a layout of uh, so you could see this thing in your mind of what this property looked like. Okay. We have a big, big, wide open field, okay, and it's flat. Beyond this field, straight ahead of you, there's a fence line, and behind this fence line, there's a second field. The second field is a big gully. It slopes, okay? Beyond that sloped pasture, way out in the back was the back mountaintop. The top of this mountain was not a peak. It was completely flat. That's where the thing touched down on the far back hill. The group walked across this first field to their left about a 45-degree angle. They're going up towards a path that's going to carry them straight up to the back where they saw this thing touch down. Kathleen May is walking ahead with the group, and she is well, with Jean, and this collie dog is leading the group. They get up to an area that leads into the pasture uh, portion of the farm, and there's a big steel gate. It's a big farmer's gate, and uh, it's, it's wrought iron and uh, metal. They get to the gate. They open the gate up. The whole group passes through the gate. They wired it shut. On the other side of this gate is where the path begins, the dirt path that goes straight up to the mountain. To their left is a heavily wooded area. Now to the right, they look down, and that's where the gully is. The group is starting to walk ahead. May and Lemon are leading the group. The kids are wagon-trained behind Okay, they're not all huddled up in one mass. Okay, they're strewn throughout this path. Mrs. May had noticed way up ahead out in the gully, it's getting a little bit darker. She saw a purplish flare light up through the back of the farm. And what ultimately had happened is when this UFO made this emergency landing and touched down on the back portion of the farm way out in the distance, it had actually moved and relocated into the back portion of the gully of the field. Do you follow me? Yep. This thing relocated, and the far back of the field, off to their right, this thing was sitting there, and it was intermittently pulsing, and that portion in the back part of the farm, there's a lot of pear trees. There was a lot more back then. The locals up there told me that's where this thing was sitting, in the back of this, uh, like it's a small orchard where all these tre uh, pear trees are. There's a few of them left up there right now. So this object had actually moved into the lower portion of the farm. Some of the group saw this thing sitting out in a distance, didn't know what it was. 
A lot of the kids didn't see it because the area where they are, the brush and the shrubbery of this overgrown farm is to their right, and it was kind of real jungly and, you know, straggly. Some of the older witnesses saw this thing up ahead, way, way out in the distance. The group is going up the, the path towards the back, and the uh, whole area began to fill up with this uh, rolling smoke. It was like a, a fog, and it smelled like sulfur, like rotten eggs. The whole area smelled like uh, this, this burning, uh, this burning-type smell. Uh, Freddie May described it as tubes that had burned out in the old radios. You have that really rancid, horrible, burnt smell mixed with sulfur. This smell was actually this fog, and it's bellowing back down the path towards them. They had no idea what it was. They kept pushing on. They wanted to go see what had touched down in the far back. They move up a little bit closer, and Gene Lemon is leading the group. Mrs. May is with him and a couple of the older boys. Now, they're still strewn out down the path. They are not huddled up together. They come about three-quarters of the way up the path. It's starting to get a little bit darker. They still didn't have their flashlights on because they didn't know how long it would be they would be up in the back and of course the old batteries and those old flashlights you don't want to put them on unless you absolutely need them you follow so you only put them on when they're absolutely necessary so they're still able to see a little bit okay. Kathleen May and Lemon reach a second gate now the second gate is actually made out of wood the remnants of it are still there right where the second gate is there's there's slats that go across the whole fence from north to south, okay? It didn't open up. They were just, Kathleen May told me back in the day that was just nailed from post to post. They had to climb over. The um, first couple witnesses climbed over the gate. Now this collie was in front of them. This collie darts off like a bat out of hell and goes running up the path and it disappears up into this this fog that's still rolling down the hill. It barks, starts going crazy, acts up. It turns around, and it heads back towards the house. It runs back through the, the wooden fence where everybody's starting to cross over, and it darts, and it takes off. In the other direction, it goes back down. Mrs. May and Lemon are over the fence. A couple of the other boys are over the fence. They're moving up the path. Freddie May and one of the other witnesses were still further behind, okay? They're still strewn along the path. Mrs. May um, hears a noise to the left of her. Now, set about approximately four feet off of this dirt path, a little bit up to the side is this white oak tree, and it's well over 100 feet tall. And this is the area where this uh, smoke is originating, this fog and bellowing from. She said the noise sounded like a, a, a drum beat, a low thud thumping beat. And there was a hissing noise. And it, she said to her it sounded like frying bacon, a crackling noise like oil and bacon in a frying pan. Something was heating up to the left there. 
she started moving up a little bit closer. Gene Lemon was next to her. A couple little boys were to the left and right of her. Freddie May had just reached the fence as May and Lemon and the leading boys are going towards this tree. As they get to the tree, they notice something up about 12 feet approximately up in the air. There were two glowing eyes. They didn't know what they were. This tree is set back into the darkness of the woods. Now they are going to use their flashlights. Gene Lemon and Kathleen May took their flashlights, took them out, and they clicked them up, and they shined them up towards the eyes about 12 feet in the air. Lemon thought it was maybe a possum. Mrs. May didn't know what the hell they were. When they flashed the, the beams up in that direction, 12 feet in the air towards this big limb that was hanging down over the path, this gigantic structure that was metallic in nature came hovering out from behind the tree that was where the smoke was coming from. It was this nearly 12-foot-tall mechanical device. This is what was called the Flatwoods Monster. Okay. It was... Um, it had a big, gigantic, round head, and it was uh, red in color. There were no eyeballs. It was described to me by Freddie May that they were actually like portholes, like if uh, you would look into a, a, a room lit up, you know, like if you're looking at your neighbor's house at night mm -hmm. and uh, the windows are lit up and uh, the lights coming through. He said they were lit up from the, out, from the inside. The lights... Uh, had pro actually projected the light force through these beams through these portholes and shot over the tops of their heads. This uh, metallic uh, entity, which was basically like a space probe, it had a shield over the top of its head that resembled uh, a cowl. Um, it was like an ace of spades shape. It was like an outer helmet. Freddie May told me there was like a plate glass window in front of it. It was like a shield. Um, this thing was approximately three foot across at the shoulders, and it tapered down towards the bottom to over four feet wide. It was basically like a big booster rocket. Along the lower portion of this um, metallic structure, Freddie told me, and Kathleen had explained to me they were pipes. And they told me that these pipes went around the whole lower circumference of the body equally separated. Do you understand what I mean? They were about as thick as your arm. Freddie May, when I was interviewing him at one point, he put his arm out and he said, Frank, they were about that thick, maybe as thick as fireman's uh, hose. This is where the gas was coming out. It was actually a propulsion system. Mrs. May told me it hovered close to a foot and a half off of the ground. When they startled it and this thing moved towards them, it came about 12 feet in front of Kathleen May. Gene Lemon actually screamed and fell over backwards. This thing was hovering across the path from left to right in front of them. Lemon fell down. One of the boys helped them up. They got a good look at this thing. It continued past them, and it went into the field to the right down where the gully was. 
they all hightailed it, and they headed back down to the house. They jumped back over the the wooden gate. Now, Freddie May had only reached the gate. He was about 30 to 32 feet away. We measured it a few years ago during one of the interviews. So we have Freddie May, who I worked with for several years. He saw this whole thing unfold in front of him. Um, the dozens of times I spoke with Kathleen May in person on telephone, I did uh, sketches being an illustrator. I was able to draw these police-style renderings. I always interviewed all the witnesses that I work with separately. I didn't want anybody to influence anybody else. So this went on for several years of working with the witnesses. When I would do my sketches sitting down with the witnesses, sometimes um, they would start out and myself being trained, I would go in and I would say, well, what about this and that? Did it look like this? And we actually got it to where they said, okay, Frank, this is what the Flatwoods monster looked like. And it was a nearly 12-foot-tall structure. How they were able to gauge the height of it was by the height of the limb of the tree that this thing was hovering under. When it lifted up off the ground, it just barely got underneath this 12-foot branch. This branch actually came down across the path and then towards the ground, towards the the valley. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah. So far, um, does this jive with what the Monster Quest show was saying? Um, they did not. The Monster Quest people did not show the monster. I'm gonna. We're calling it Flatwoods Monster Monster Quote. That was its nickname. Mm-hmm. It was actually metallic structure. Monster Quest never showed any of my illustrations color illustrations which depicted the monster when they showed the the scene they showed gene lemon flashing the flashlight lemon and may were both flashing the flashlight and they never cut to a scene so you never saw what the monster actually looked like if you go to my website www.flatwoodsmonster.com we have i have all of my illustrations in color are all over my website and you can actually see my illustration of the encounter. Uh, the nickname came forth of the green monster. The monster was actually an aluminum silver color. Um, at that point of the year, the, the sh- there was a lot of shrubs and greenery, and the trees had not turned fully, so there was a lot of green shrubs in the area. We had uh, a lot of the overgrowth, and when this thing actually lit up from the inside and the witnesses hit it with their flashlights, the chrome uh, silver aluminum color of this uh, structure actually reflected the green environment from around it. That is where the name of the green monster came from, but it was actually uh, like a, a metallic steel color. So in the show, when they show that reptilian-looking thing wearing sort of a ship <laughs> or armored suit right. or something, the, you're saying that right. that reptilian creature doesn't exist? That reptilian creature was in an, uh, a different episode that occurred the following day. Okay. That is that is true. Um, but we did not see what the Flatwoods monster looked like. What Freddie May and the other seven witnesses saw 
was the Flatwoods Monster in its full suit. What was seen the following night was the Flatwoods Monster in the lower chamber, the lower portion of the suit, the lower torso, Mm -hmm. the upper torso of the suit was off. But that was not shown in the Monster Quest episode. They did not show what the monster looked like. What Freddie May and Kathleen May and the witnesses that I work with and from, um, I actually went back and I found some of the original notes and some of the early publications and private publications of the original investigators who were Ivan T. Sanderson and Gray Barker. There was also a fellow called Paul Lieb who uh, went up and investigated this thing. There was a a lot of uh, heavy hitters who went up there in the day and documented this case which, by the way, it was the 11th biggest news story of the year. This wasn't a little uh, backward story that didn't reach uh, out of the mountains. This thing hit the presses around the world and shotgun. So um, what we have here is something that was seen by the witnesses. And we have this 12-foot-tall structure with this cowl-type device over its head, that the witnesses described to me was darker and more black in color. Um, it had the plate glass window in front, the structure. So it almost resembled, looking inside of it, picture a fighter pilot sitting in his jet with his helmet on with, you know, the black face, that he, the, um, like his goggles. That's what this thing was. The head itself, guys, was actually round and an inner helmet. There was a neck piece structure, and the head would rotate. Kathleen May said the head would rotate inside. It wasn't, what they saw was not a flesh being. It was a structure. Mm-hmm. Was there any writing on the structure or any markings? No. They said there was no no uh, writing whatsoever. What I didn't touch on in, in the, the story here is um, I'm going to tell it to you in the order of how it was told to me. When Kathleen May got back to the house, she noticed a black oily substance that had hit the front of her. Uh, Kathleen May was a, a beautician and a, a hair cutter, and she wore a, um, she actually told me it was a beige uniform, and she had a little beige hat to match. She was up there because she had just got home from work, and she was up, went up there with the boys in her uh, work uniform. When she got back to the house, she was tending to the boys. The boys were uh, quite hysterical. Jean Lemon uh, vomited. They were overcome by the sulfur smell. Uh, their their eyes were, were beat red. Some of the boys were, were bleeding. They had fallen down. They were hysterical, you know, cut up knees and whatnot. So Kathleen eventually noticed down the front of her, she was splattered with this strange black oil. That was shot out from this machine. What they saw wasn't flesh and blood. It was a machine. It was like a small hovercraft device. And it seemed to be damaged. It was uh, spewing out and leaking oil. It was making odd noises. Um, When it hovered towards them, that's when this thing was shooting oil out all over the place. 
and that's what hit the front of her uniform and splattered. She didn't notice that until she got back down to the house, and she was tending to the boys and trying to get the, the whole situation under control. I guess the thing that I'm sort of confused by is the next, is it the next day when they see the reptilian creature? Mm-hmm. Um, presumably that's the thing inside the helmet, inside the ship, right? Right, exactly. Um, so when you say that the Flatwoods monster is a mechanical device and not a creature, it is a right. creature, isn't it? It's the reptilian guy inside the device. Right, but what they saw, they didn't see the flesh and blood portion. They saw a miniature spaceship. Right, so who saw the uh, the reptile? That was seen uh, in a totally different incident uh, 24 hours later, approximately 17 miles away. Okay, when Kathleen May got back down to the house with the boys, and I'm going to throw in there that it was documented by Ivan T. Sanderson, the dog was found dead the following day. Okay, so I wanted to bring that into, into focus. Mm-hmm. And uh, Kathleen May had called up the local sheriff's department. Uh, Sheriff uh, Bob Carr. He was not in. He was out tr- uh, chasing things that were crashing around Braxton County. Braxton County was actually the hub where several UFOs were actually seen that night and going down. There was another one that went down in that particular area that night as well. And she called the Sheriff's Department, who in turn contacted the state police. The state police weren't in the area. And the local reporter, Ailey Stewart Jr., who used to work with the police department, he uh, had a really nice camera. And back in the day, he worked with the police and he would go to crime scenes, uh, murder scenes, car accidents, whatever, and he would actually take the photographs for for the police. So he was uh, pretty involved with the police. He actually got a call from the jailkeeper in Sutton. Sutton is the county seat. That's where the sheriff's department was. And he actually went up to the May residence um, on behalf of the police. Nobody else was around. And Kathleen May is hysterical. She said that she saw this big 12-foot thing in the woods that um, scared the hell out of her and a bunch of the kids. And... Ailey Stewart actually went up to the May home. He stopped and he picked up a friend of his who knew the exact area, and they went up to the May house. So he was the Johnny on the spot and the first one to walk in and see what was going on with the group. Um, It took me a few years, but eventually I was able to track down Ailey Stewart Jr., and I went up to his house for a few days and I sat down with him, and I actually have a videotape of uh, Ailey Stewart Jr., and he told me the story of what happened and unfolded. And his timeline is one of the most important ones that I have because he was there. He interviewed the boys the following day, and he was actually the first person to go up on to the farm the following morning, and he went up to the farm that night with the two oldest boys. They were kind of hysterical. They did not want to go back up there, and I can't blame them. Uh, Stewart told me that when he found out where this thing happened on the back, now you guys could picture um, 
Kathleen May with a house full of hysterical kids. One of the kids freaked out and ran all the way home, like a mile, ran into the house, slammed his bedroom door, put on the radio, and he wouldn't talk to anybody. He was scared out of his wits. The rest of them are going nuts, and Kathleen May's trying to calm them down. Ailey Stewart Jr. walked in with his friend to this hysterical scene. When he found out that it had happened on the back farm, he tried getting uh, somebody to take him up to the area. And they're basically, we're not going up there. And he grabbed one of the older kids by the back of the neck. And he said, he told me he was crying and whimpering under his breath like a whipped pup. Hmm. And he, he went up to the area they got a bunch of the locals, and they were all armed with uh, shotguns. They had handguns. Stuart told me he always carried a gun with him. And um, some of the parts up there, you go into these uh, hollers and different places. You know, you got to be careful because people carry shotguns, and they're always got hunting rifles and handguns with them. So he went up there, and he, from the descriptions, they thought it was best to form a posse. Some of the locals got together, and they went up back onto the farm. The boys told him this was the particular area where the tree, they went right back. Stewart told me he had a large electric lantern, and he was casing the place with this big light that he had in his vehicle. Mm-hmm. And he saw two big giant marks, paths out into the gully of the field to the right. And the boys were talking about the smell. There was still some of that sulfur-type smell left. Well, Stewart was a veteran of the United States Air Force. And during his training, he knew that gas settles. So Stewart got down on his belly, and he smelled all this cruddy sulfur smell was still in the grass in the vicinity, and it was still down into the dirt. So he told me he quit. He picked up that smell real fast when he got down low because it was a you know it was a little while by the time they had got back up there, and he said he quickly saw the big skid marks is what they called them out in the field. What these skid marks actually were is there was two of them where the UFO had sat out into the far gully of the field and had made an impression when it landed. This was the second touchdown area when it relocated. Coming out from that second touchdown area, there was an area that was approximately four feet wide cut through the long grass. What this actually was was the uh, picture of a leaf blower walking through high gla- uh, grass. It was actually the path mark made by this hovering craft called the Flatwoods Monster. It went, Stuart told me that it cut through the whole field and it went up towards the direction of the tree. That's after it had landed. After it was sighted, when the group saw it go in front of the, across them in front of the path, it actually made a second path going back. So you basically have footprints coming out and footprints going back to the, the path. He told me they were up on the farm for about a half an hour, and he said they weren't too inclined to hunt for something in the dark that they didn't know what it was. 
so they headed back down. The boys didn't really want to stay up there. They were still uh, hysterical. They all went back down to the house. Stewart spoke to them, and he asked them if he could come back up the following day and uh, videotape, uh, not, I'm sorry, not videotape, tape record. I videotaped Stewart. They, he wanted to tape them. He got a tape recorder and went back up there the following day. The following day, he was actually the first person on the farm when the sun came up that morning. And uh, during the course of his whole uh, interview with me, he laid out the timeline of what happened from the point when he got to the house to what happened in the following weeks. Mm -hmm. So this is how I was able to piece together the timeline of what happened by working with the witnesses uh, on the, the school playground. Right. Then we have Mrs. May at the house. She was the closest witness uh, working with um, Stewart. He laid the whole timeline out of what happened up there. He told me how the police department worked, uh, how many cruisers there were, how many covered the area. Then I worked closely with Jack Davis, who was up in that area, who actually saw the craft come over from a different vantage point in the town. So by working with all of these old-timers, I put together this gigantic story of what went on in the Flatwoods area. Then I pieced together everything else from the Project Blue Book documents. The Blue Book documents had a lot of information in them. Then I started pulling together all of the newspaper articles from West Virginia, and then I started finding out there were sightings across the, the country. And uh, it, it's quite amazing some of the headlines that I found. Let me... Uh, jump into it a little bit and tell you some of the states where these UFOs were actually sighted. They were um, over Delaware, Maryland, North Carolina, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, Washington, D.C., and West Virginia. Those were the eastern states. In California and Illinois, there were sightings out in, in the West Coast in California and over Illinois. If you go onto my website, you could see the master map and you could scan it and actually look through it. And um, it's under the current information off of my website and it'll link you up to the, the page. And I explain a little bit more in detail about what happened that night. So let, let's just back up a second. When um, people saw the, the reptilian creature uh, 17 miles away or so, did it okay. communicate with them? Was it doing basically the same thing that, that happened well, the other night? Okay, I'll jump into that here, okay? Uh, what I did is I used my master map, and you'll see that on my website, okay? Connected the dots. When I got into the Braxton County area uh, of Gasaway, Sutton, Frametown, Flatwoods, that, that little hub area there in central West Virginia, I had to get local maps, and I plotted points from some of the old newspaper articles. The papers back then were weekly. They were very small. I used some of the other information from past investigators and other interviews of people that passed away, and what I did is I got the regional maps, uh, usually the hunters up there buy them for, you know, during hunting season. 
I use them for plotting points of the UFOs and the flight path trajectories. What I found out is after the craft touched down in Flatwoods, after the monster sighting, this thing got back into the craft and it took off. It was actually sighted leaving the farm. I took all my research materials and I plotted the points of where it went to after it left the farm. It went down and followed the river and actually went approximately 17 miles across Braxton County and it was seen landing up on the top of what is called James Knob, James Knoll. That's where we did the shoot, the night shoot on top of uh, James Knoll with the Monster Quest crew. That's where it was seen to touch down. We got permission from the James family to go up there with Monster Quest. Back in 1952, on September 12th, this thing, this craft, the, the Flatwoods Monster Craft, flew and landed up on James Knoll. It was seen by relatives of the, the, the James boys that we were with up there, and they were interviewed by Ivan T. Sanderson back in the day. And the boys back on September 12, 52, saw the thing touch down way out in the far back. They didn't go up there. And the following day is where this whole thing ties in with this reptilian creature that was seen there. When the James boys saw the UFO go down that night, it was basically a fireball. This thing had flames coming off of it, and they saw it touch down at the far point of the property. That's the approximate vicinity where we were with Monster Quest. That whole area there in that portion of Braxton County is a hot spot for UFO sightings. There's been documented sightings in Frametown for, for years. Um, there was a couple that was on a national television show back in 1990 that had a flying saucer flying through their backyard. I had documented crop circle rings on a farm there. I have uh, UFO uh, video footage. I have uh, photographs of UFOs from that whole area. Something was going on. That's why we were there with Monster Quest. It was a hot spot for UFO sightings. Back in 1952, when the James boys saw this thing go down in the back, um, everybody thought that was basically the end of the story. Okay, There was no connection. I pinpointed the flight path trajectory and had a direct path between the Bailey Fisher Farm and Flatwoods and James Knoll and Frametown. Well, not too many people knew about this particular incident in uh, Frametown. When Ivan T. Sanderson made this uh, known in his book in the late 60s, that was basically the first time it was talked about. Well, there was a story that was overlooked by the majority of the public, and it was an incident that happened in that same area in Plaintown the following night, almost 24 hours later, almost to the minute. There was um, a couple from Queens, New York, and they were driving um, back to Queens, and they were coming from Ohio. They were on vacation visiting some friends. 
and they wanted to take a scenic route and pass through the mountains. Now, you have to remember, back then there was uh, no major interstates, so a lot of traveling was done on secondary roads. Mm-hmm. Uh, George Anidis Natowski were driving through Braxton County, and they came into the Frametown area, and their automobile stalled. And when it went down, they uh, noticed this, uh, what they called an ether smell, a horrible ether smell mixed with sulfur, basically the same smell that was noted in Flatwoods. Uh, It's pretty well dark now at this point. They had uh, a young infant, a boy, in their car, and they actually, in the back seat back in those days, they didn't have baby seats. They had like a, a, a tiny crib, and it was set in the back of the car, and that's where the baby was. Well, when the automobile stalled, George jumped out of the car. And he uh, tried starting the car up. He was monkeying around with the battery. It was a fairly new battery. He didn't understand what was going on. And um, he noticed off to the side of the road, set back in the woods, what he said it was about two or 300 feet away and it was behind some trees. He said uh, there was this some kind of uh, what he described as a luminescent spheroid. And he was standing there looking at this thing and this fog started rolling in. Basically the same thing that will happen in Flatwoods. And he said that it looked like a frosted street lamp except a couple hundred times larger, and it was basically sitting out in the woods, and it was like a purplish color, almost like what Mrs. May described the night before with that purplish-colored flare, and this thing was sitting out in the woods. And George started walking towards this thing, and he had these... uh, like a tingling sensation, like these prickling sensations that were like a thousand of needles stabbing him. It was like a, basically a low electrical shock as he's moving towards this thing. Well, Edith is in the car. She grabbed the baby. She pulled the baby up towards her, and uh, the smell was overwhelming. The Wednesday, she had to roll the windows back up, and George is walking out. He's walking through this fog, and he's walking towards the woods away from the car, and he's trying to check out what the hell this thing was out in the woods. And as he started moving a little bit closer, he was overwhelmed by this smell, this sulfur smell, and he started vomiting all over the place. And, you know, he went down on his knees, and he started moving back away because this electrical impulse was getting stronger you know, coming from him. He said that he felt uh, his legs were numb and uh, he was rubbery and he kept falling down. You know, he was losing his balance. He's trying to catch his breath. This real horrible smells permeating through the area and he's trying to get his act together and he's turning and he's walking back towards the car and all of a sudden his wife, Edith, she lets out this uh, blood-curdling scream, and she's screaming like Fay Ray when she saw King Kong, absolute bloody murder. She is freaked out, and she's screaming, look behind you, look behind you, and blah, blah, and she's yelling, and George turns around, and up behind him was this nine-foot-tall creature. That's what we saw in Monster Quest. Mm-hmm. 
what it basically was was from the waist up looked like a reptilian. From the waist down was the spacesuit with the pipes. So we and they have, downplayed we, they downplayed their reaction on Monster Quest, right? Uh, yeah, a little bit. I think maybe because of their PG audience. Right. She was paralyzed in fear and screaming, goddamn bloody murder. She sees this thing coming up from the, you know, the edge of the woods up alongside of the road. He's working back towards the car. He's falling down. He's throwing up. He's covered in vomit. Okay, there's your scene. He's trying to get back there. She's screaming. Uh, the baby is going hysterical because it's hard to breathe. Some of that uh, that smoke smell had come in, and before they got the wind, before the windows went up, and he got when he got out of the car, all of this uh, crap came billowing into the car. So the baby's having trouble breathing. It's crying. It's going nuts. She's screaming like a banshee, pointing up behind him, and he turns around and sees this thing. Mm-hmm. So he almost has a heart attack. He runs back towards the car, jumps into the car. Did the creature have a reaction? Did it show an emotion of any sort? It just hovered directly towards them. Okay. I it mean, didn't make this is any- an alien, right? Yeah. Presumably an alien from another planet. You would think that it would be more startled than they are. Uh, well, you're talking maybe uh, five foot ten Earthling. It's something that's nine foot tall. I don't think it was startled. <laughs> I think they were a lot more startled than it was. Uh, this thing was about uh, twice the size of a human. Okay. This thing was gigantic. And, um, you know, basically uh, he described it as being a good nine feet tall. Mm-hmm. So it's well over three feet taller than him. Okay. And it had a, a big head and a bloated body, uh, reptilian in nature, uh, almost like a snake, okay, and it had long, skinny, spindly arms. And his descriptions were, as the arm went down towards the wrist area was, there wasn't a real hand. It was like two fingers. He said they were forked. Okay, this thing came up, and George, quote, he fumbled with the door handle, and, you know, he's freaking out. He jumped in the car, and he slammed the door. And they're they're going hysterical, and George is yelling at his wife to try to quiet him, muffle him, you know, keep the baby down. You know, it's freaking out. You could picture this whole scene going hysterical. She's shut screaming. up! Shut up, you! <laughs> yeah, and, you know, it's like you're trying to draw attention, but this thing is making a beeline towards you. What he did is he had, when he got into the car, he uh, grabbed for a knife that he kept in his glove box. He had this big, gigantic knife. And it's interesting, you have your wife and your baby there. They are going nuts. He took them, pushed them down on the floor. Now, back the cars back then, you had room on the floor where, where you could pile down. She's holding the baby. He climbed on top of them. He's protecting them, and he reaches in, and he pulls out this big blade. And they're basically hidden under the knee underneath the the dashboard and the smoke is covering through most of the area and he said uh that his chest was hammering like a sledge and um then he said he poked his head up and he got a close look close-up look of whatever it was that was out there 
So he had he picked his head up when he looked up. He saw across, across the top of the dashboard. He saw this thing standing there, and it's looking down at him. What it had actually done is it circled around the car and came back up to the front. And when he looked up, this thing nine foot tall is looking back down at him through the windshield. Can you imagine that? So what was portrayed in Monster Quest there was correct. Mm-hmm. Okay, I spoke to George Natowski. I had actually sent him some of my research up in Queens, New York. I got a, a registered uh, letter. He signed the green receipt, sent it back to me. I waited a few days, and I called him up, and I spoke to him on the phone. Uh, he said mostly everything that he remembers was in that article. He said that article was 100% true. It was not stretched. All the quotes were right. And I have a copy of that article. It was in the Mail 1950, Mail, M-A-L-E, magazine, July 1955 issue. He waited about three years before he went public with this thing. So a lot of people up there didn't even know what had actually happened. And the story kind of fizzled away a little bit, a flat was, but nobody ever put two and two together. Uh-huh. Uh, this story was actually documented by uh, the great Jacques Vallée, okay? And he wrote about it in his book, Passport to Magonia. And not too many people picked up on this story. I found the original magazine in Orlando, Florida, years ago. And I have a copy of it, and when I talked to George, I reviewed some of the portions of the article, and we talked a little bit. And um, basically, we have something that was seen in Frametown that was nine foot tall with that lower portion that was a solid mass. It had pipes going around it. So this thing was actually standing inside of this suit. Mm-hmm. The lower torso was like a space suit. This thing reached down, and he called it, Sintowski called it a long, spindly arm, and it touched the hood of the car, and it burnt right through into the paint, down to the primer, to the metal. Hmm. So what was portrayed there was correct. What wasn't very clear was that what was seen in Flatwoods was seen as the entire structure with the full helmet on, the outer helmet with the face mask in the front, with the upper torso, there was um, antenna-like devices that were sticking out. That was not seen the next night. That was gone. So you basically had something that was like a suit of armor, and the upper portion of it was off. What Snitowski and his wife saw was the actual creature standing inside of the lower portion of this. Well, what they also did was uh, they tried to tie this into Lloyd Pye's Star Child skull, which I know threw you for a loop. Did you ever talk to Lloyd about that? Talk to Lloyd? No. I I never met Lloyd Pye. Oh, okay. For for those who didn't see the Monster Quest show, they basically said, could this Star Child skull be the Flatwoods monster? It's like, hmm. No. No. Yeah, that skull was uh, very small. What was seen in Flatwoods, uh, a nine-foot-tall creature. It was uh, bigger than Andre the Giant, and that's pretty big. I met Andre the Giant in New York years ago, and I look like a baby standing next to him, and I'm 6'5 <laughs> and weigh 240. I look like a little kid standing next to him. 
So he was a couple feet taller than Andre the Giant, this thing that was seen. But it was peculiar, the um, the hands. Right. How, how they were described, how they went into the, like, forked fingers. There was only two instead of uh, four fingers and a thumb. But what, what's interesting about this whole thing is that we have this uh, cloudy mist that smelt like sulfur in both cases. We... Um, we have the different uh, the different incidents. We have the two different colored lights, the purplish lights from the UFO. The UFOs in both instances were described as oval, and um, we have the lower portions are described almost identical, except we have a creature standing in one the night before it had its full suit on, and I believe it was a protective suit. When this thing came down in Flatwoods, it came out and it was very hot. It was leaking oil. It was spewing all over the place. Um, it was on fire. When this thing was seen the next night, it was just seen with the lower portion. Mm -hmm. The upper portion was gone. So that was portrayed right. Frank, we've got a case here that's, that I mean, certainly I appreciate you going over it the last hour for both these instances, but it seems like in both cases both in the original Flatwoods and then the subsequent Frametown. Am I saying that right? Uh, citing, it seems like there should be a host of physical evidence in this. And is there? I mean, we've got the, the material on, uh, on Miss May, on her, on her dress, I think. You said right. the oily substance had got onto her. For what little looking around that I did today, I know that, that Lee Stewart, you said, had gone into the field uh, the next morning. That was the September 13th, right? Right. Okay. Yeah, he went there uh, at sunrise. Right. And, uh, and he saw the, the, the tracks basically in, in the grass. And he, and as far as I've read today, that he also found some of the thick black liquid that was supposedly spewing out of this thing. It actually uh, was on his clothes. Okay. Well, it was, it was, it was on his clothes and he found a piece of metal. Okay. In the field. And it was confiscated from him the day before he went on national television. As far as the, um, the confiscated oil, by whom I would have to ask. Two people that claimed to be with the government from the Treasury Department stopped over to his place, huh. and they got one portion of it. And then he had he told me this is all in my book. He put the balance of the metal into a vial. And they actually, what they did with that oil that was all over his pants, right. he said these these people, and I go into it more detail in the book, they took some type of a, a paper-type material and got an iron, and they actually soaked up what was on his pants and put it onto this paper. Uh -huh. When he got back from work from the Braxton Democrat later on that day, the metal that one is, was in his house was gone. Okay. He told me the balance of the metal was gone. As far as Kathleen May's concerned with this metal, they scraped out. She told me two guys came up and posed as newspaper reporters. She kind of blew them off because there was hundreds of people up there wanting to get an interview from her. Right. She said the following day, these two guys came back, and they had their $500 suits on with fancy hats and shoes, which they stuck out like a sore thumb up there. And they claimed that they had come down from Washington, D.C., and they were agents, 
and they had to talk to her, and they wanted to see the oil that was splattered on the front of her uniform. Okay. And she said they actually took a special little tool and scraped it and took all of this oil out of her uniform and put it into an envelope. They went up onto the farm, okay, and um, one of Mrs. May's boys was there. Now, there's hundreds of people running around the farm, and she said that one of the guys stood there and spoke to her, and one of the other agents walked up into the area where the monster sighting had took place, and she says he came back a bit, a little bit while later. And during this interview, it was kind of funny because Mrs. May was laughing when she was telling me this on tape. She said the agent that came back looked like a zebra. He had a light-colored uh, suit on. She said from head to toe, he was covered in oil because oh. he was walking through the woods, and this thing had actually splattered and spewed oh, oil okay. all over the place. And he turned around and he said to the other agent who was standing in the field in front of Mrs. May, I wonder what Ed is going to think when we show him this. Huh. Now, anybody who knows their background history of Project Blue Book, Ed is Ed Rupel, who was right. the chief of Project Blue Book in 52. What I didn't jump into here, guys, is I have the only interview in existence of the commander of the West Virginia National Guard, Colonel Dale Levitt. I interviewed Levitt before he died. I went up onto the farm with uh, the colonel, and he gave me a full-blown interview of what had actually happened that night. Levitt was called at his home in Braxton County. He was told to get a bunch of troops together. He ended up with approximately, he told me, about 180 troops. They went into in another area where there was a UFO crash. Remember I told you there was a couple of them that night up in the area? He went up to this area with um, 180 troops looking for what was said to have been a crashed airplane. That is the same area where Sheriff Bob Carr was earlier, why he missed Mrs. May's call. Okay, okay. He's up there with 180 troops. He was told to leave and go up into Flatwoods, and he went up into Flatwoods. He told me he had about 50 to 60 guys. He cordoned off the whole area, and he told me uh, he was told to stay there to see if something else was going to happen, and that's a quote. The Air Force had told him to, to stay up there. Mm. He set the troops up. He gathered samples. He found a ton of that oil. So they basically excavated that area and took whatever they found. Uh, I mean, we say, pieces. I mean, we say oil, but we don't really know what the hell it was. Correct? They call it an oily-like substance. Okay. Um, Stewart Stewart told me it was not like regular car oil. Well, sure. He said yeah. It was. It was nothing like that. Uh, Colonel Levitt actually found a puddle of it near the tree. Okay. Uh, he was told to dig up some dirt, take leaves off of the tree. He grabbed whatever samples. He found a piece of metal. And what's interesting is that there was um, what was called black plastic-like substance on the ground. Hmm. 
And that is similar to the pieces I found, and we still don't have a definitive answer what that stuff was. Did people go up there and in radiation suits, or did they just go up there willy-nilly and dig around? They just went up there, what, the locals right after? Uh, no, well, the locals or the, the military people. The, the military just went up there in trucks that night. Colonel Levitt went up there with the troops in a couple trucks. And what they did is they came into the back logging road, the back access of the farm. They didn't come up like, hi, we're here, we're the military, we're going to scare the hell out of everybody and let the go, you know, let everybody know the government really was serious about this thing. <laughs> right. They came in through the backside, parked at the end of the logging road at the, at the, the northern part of the property, and the troops came in up through the back. They cordoned off the area. And they went through and they cleaned the area out. They missed the piece of metal. There's no way you could have found every piece. They've missed the piece of metal that Stewart found. But you've got all this toxic okay. stuff going on and nobody's worried about the toxicity of it? That's the thing. I don't uh, back then, I guess not. Because huh. it was it was reported, and I have a Charleston Gazette article here, and it says, uh, this was from 1954, and I want to quote this. In the meantime, hundreds of curious visitors rushed to Flatwoods. The day after the sighting, visitors reported finding large marks, oil spots, scraps of metal, and pieces of black plastic-like substance on the ground. Huh. Ailey Stewart, Braxton County uh, reporter, said the skid marks were about 10 feet apart and about 10 yards long. So we, we do have trace evidence up there. People were just grabbing this stuff off the farm. Now, I know that there's no way the military could have found every little piece of, of what was up there because you have long grass here up there. They were in there well after midnight, in the middle of the night, in pitch black, and they were up there with their flashlights and electric lanterns combing the area. They found the puddle by the tree. And um, when I interviewed Levitt, he said that he sent these uh, samples up to Washington. And when I asked him who did it go to, he's told me the Air Force people. And they contacted him through Washington, and he said they wanted to know what it was. That's a quote. So whatever happened there, the Air Force knew something went down there. And they contacted Levitt and sent him up there with all of his troops, and they cordoned off the farm. So Levitt saw the, the marks. He saw the oil. He saw the section of the grass pushed down. He saw what was called the skid marks, which were actually, you know, pieces, uh, the, a section of the farm where the grass was laid over and blown down on the side. When um, Stewart was up there the next day, he basically says it looked like he went there with a, a a leaf blower, and he said small rocks were flipped upside down and turned over. And as he was walking through those um, marks, that is the, the the Flatwoods Monster craft. Okay, it was leaking oil, and as it was going back and forth between the craft, it was spewing this oil out. And Stewart told me this oil was all the way through the path, and as he walked through the path, all of this crap was getting on his pants. As far as that, that Saturday morning, the 13th of September, when, when Stuart went down into the field, 
you know, he saw the tracks. He, he sees, I mean, I, I've, I'm looking here online. It says that he's got traces of a thick black liquid. But uh, you said how far apart were these tracks? About 10 foot? The impressions in the ground that look like look like drag marks or 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 drag marks through the ground. They were about ten foot apart. Is that what I heard you say? Yeah, yeah. Um, According to the newspaper here, yeah. Oh, okay. It was basically one path going away from the craft when it landed. This okay. thing was hovering across the field through. Back then, the locals said the grass was about knee to waist high. Okay, so it's enough to make okay, a decent so you track. Yeah. I mean, it's it's yeah, enough it, to make a decent track in it. I mean, the, right. the thing that I've got is that apparently someone, and I don't know where this information comes from, so you have to excuse that. But it said, it says here that it will later be revealed that the tracks most likely belong to a 1942 Chevy, Chevy pickup, which was driven by Max Lockard, who had right, gone to right. the site to look for the creature some hours prior to Stewart's discovery. Now, I just looked up the wheelbase for a 1942 Chevy pickup. It's nine mm-hmm. foot seven inches, which right. is ten foot. I mean, might as well say ten foot, very close to it. You know, and if you're dealing with grass, so as far as those tracks go, don't you think it might be? I don't know, somewhat more likely that it's you know Lockard's pickup truck than it is. Uh, I mean, what I'm saying is, I think it, it's a strong possibility with all the excitement that was going on up there and the publicity that was given to it that the whole area could be contaminated by locals just trompsing around. Uh, that sort of thing it certainly doesn't account for the plastic material or all of that. Well, oil the track marks were yeah. were four feet across. Okay, there's no tires that were four feet wide. Mm-hmm. Well, you I mean, what I mean, yeah, but I mean, if you're talking it's about each- if you're talking about something that is, uh, you know, going through grass that's knee deep tall, I mean, it would be. I don't know how easy it would be to find out an exact width of that, unless it's a. Is it was it a really clear cut swath that was cut through this grass? Yeah. And was it well, really- here's the other thing. Here's the other thing that people don't realize. When Lockard went up there that night, uh-huh. he didn't go into the gully of the farm. Okay. He was driving around the first field. Remember, I said earlier, the first field was a flat level field. Right. That's okay. where he was driving the truck. That's where he was driving around. Okay. He never went to the back because they would have had to open up the gate. Mm-hmm. And when you open up that middle gate, um, it's kind of a narrow path. You you could get up there. Okay. And when you get up there, the first fence was there on that path. So you couldn't have got beyond that wooden gate because remember I also said earlier it was nailed shut. Right, exactly. Yeah. And you have a fence line there. So where Max Locker actually was, he was driving around in the first field. I got he you. wasn't in the second field down in the back. Okay. And uh some of the some of the other locals were saying that it uh and the Project Blue Book uh explanation given by uh Al Chop to Keyhole back in fifty three said that the path marks and everything was made by villagers running around up there. You yeah. know. But luckily I spoke to Stewart who was there that night and with the boys then we have Colonel Levitt, who was there, who saw the tracks. Right. This was before anybody went up there. Mm-hmm. And then Stewart was the first person to see these tracks during, before anybody went up there. Right. And it did turn into a mess later on. But, you know, I have 
these interviews, and I can only go by what I was told by firsthand witnesses of what the area looked like. Sure. But Stewart, Stewart said that the path was four foot wide, huh. cut right through. Okay. And he said there were small rocks flipped over and strewn right. in there. Basically, like a, uh, if you had a four foot wide leaf blower and right. just walked right through the path, and that's okay. what it was. Lockhart never went up there. Okay. Now, as far as the uh, material that was taken, I mean, you have still some of this stuff that was found in the in the uh, in the area of of the uh, Flatwoods stuff. I mean, yes. the, the plastic material. What where have you have, taken that, and what what's been done with it? Well, that was um, looked at on Monster Quest, and everything is inconclusive. Okay. And I have pieces of that separated all over the country, and I have made, I don't know, I got a lot of that tree left. So I still have quite a bit of that stuff, and uh, never be the sole holder of the evidence. I have this stuff all <laughs> over the United States mailed out to people and people and people. So. Right. Right. <laughs> so if I get somebody who would like to work with me, I still have a lot of this stuff left. Well, What's well, interesting that was not touched on in the Monster Quest is what caused a tree that's made out of white oak, one of the mm -hmm. hardest woods in the world, that made furniture out of it, okay, why it crumbled into sawdust. Huh. This uh, wood, guys, I have a lot of it that I had uh, back. I was friends with one of the guys whose brother owned that farm. I said that in the interview on television. For years, I had access to that farm, and this wood was laying all over the place. I have documented this tree from when I started going up there about 20 years ago on videotaped. I got hundreds of pictures of it. It has slowly deteriorated. What you saw there was a small portion of the shell. When I started going up about 20 years ago, the uh, tree basically was like a big, giant cannoli shell. The guts had rotted from the tree and fallen, but it still was an entire shell. But it was only maybe about 10, 11 feet high. Now it's fallen apart. The outer shell, which was the bark, has fallen down, and there's a chunk of it, and it continues to uh, deteriorate. No sign of termites was, or anything? No, there was uh, no termites, no bugs, no fungus. There was no bacteria whatsoever in that okay. tree. And um, what's interesting, though, is I have pieces of this tree, and I put it into a storage unit. And over the years, these pieces still keep breaking down huh. as I have them in Tupperware pieces, solid pieces are still breaking down and turning into sawdust. Hmm. So whatever it is, it's still in that tree. Right. Something something happened up there and nobody has been able to tell me why a tree like that has deteriorated. And you've had some of that tree looked at by, you know, someone that would be versed in finding out you know what foreign substance may be doing this to this tree, if it is a foreign substance? Well, that was not, uh, I should say, supposedly not found in the Monster Quest episode. Okay. Huh. When they looked at it, they said there was no... Uh, no reason no for it. No okay. contamination. They had no trace evidence of what it was. But then on the other hand, um, you have uh, almost 60 years. It was actually 57 years to the point when they examined it. If there was anything in there, which... I still find it hard to believe they couldn't find one drop 
of whatever caused that to happen. Right. Uh, nobody knows why that tree disintegrated, and it's the only tree in, that I've seen in West Virginia that looks like that. Huh. And uh, what caused it to break down and why it is still breaking down. I have pictures of that tree going back to 1952 when Gray Barker, the original investigator, standing next to it. I have pictures of it from the 60s all the way up to when I was up there recently and you saw what it looked like. And it is continuing to break down and rot and rot and rot. Those black pieces I found in the area of the tree and they were down actually in the ground. Okay. Those weren't laying out. The ground around there is very soft. And I was just grabbing handfuls of dirt over the years. And how I found those black pieces were in the soil. They weren't on top. Okay. Everybody had said, when you go up there, dig down a little bit because of erosion. The trees sitting on a small hill. Erosion will cause stuff and, and mud and to, to cover over the years. So I went down a little bit deeper. And I was just taking out coffee cans and Tupperware jars full of this uh, junk. And when I sifted the soil, that's when the soil started falling through and the pieces of the sawdust because the trees disintegrate. And and what was left were some of these black pieces. And is it um, what what kind of... uh... What kind of characteristics does, does this black plastic material have? Is it is it you know glass smooth? Is it kind of rough? I mean, just for there's, people like me who didn't see Monster Quest, I'm curious. The, there's a, a couple different uh, types of pieces. Uh, this stuff is hard as a rock. And on Monster Quest, they said it was ex- uh, something was ex- this was exposed to high heat. Okay. Um, it was hard as a rock. Okay. Uh, like a piece of coal or carbon, okay. you could sketch with it or draw with it. This wasn't like that. This stuff, you had to smash it with a hammer. It was so hard. And then there's other pieces that had different characteristics. It wasn't just like one piece. Um, there's there's a lot more samples. Huh. But uh, eventually, maybe we could get somebody else to do some testing on it and come to a definitive answer with a lot more uh, answers than uh, what was not told to me. Well, what, yeah. what does it but, mean um, when something is inconclusive? Do they not? Can they not see what the chemical composition of it is? They they didn't reveal any. They huh. said there, there, whatever was in that, whatever caused that tree to die, there was no chemicals picked up. No, I mean in the uh, the black uh, plastic substance. Right, some type of a charcoal like. Right, but I mean, when, they, when they test it, do they say what what? What it's made up of, or is that the thing that's... I did not get the composites of it. I do not have a a, a composite breakdown that told what this thing actually was. I really, I still don't know what it is. You got to get that. (laughs) Yeah, you You definitely got to get that. I mean, Monster Quest didn't do that? Uh, they they said they did, but I didn't get anything from a laboratory that gave, gave a breakdown of anything. I never, the fellow who who actually did the testing, I never talked to him. I never saw the Monster Quest show until it was aired that night. Mm-hmm. Wow. A lot of the stuff that went on there, besides when I was up there with uh, Stanton Friedman, uh, John Barker, Freddie May, Al Lenberg, and John Bainbridge, 
we did our bit up there as far as the scientific thing in the background. I had no idea what was going on until that show was broadcast. So I saw it when the American public saw it, and I had no way of, of knowing what was going to be edited. That show was just put on, and I saw it when everybody else did. Right. And I still don't know all the background of what happened with the, um, the testing. Well, it's sure. weird that they wouldn't they wouldn't say anything about that because it seems like that would be an important and easy to discover thing. You know, what, what is this thing made of? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, some type of a, it, it was said some type of a, a biological uh, composite. I, I I don't know the whole breakdown of it. Well, you would be willing to. I mean, I, I live in Baltimore, Maryland. We've got Johns Hopkins labs like all over the place downtown. I mean, if I could get an in there, would you be interested in having somebody there doing workup on it? If they, if I can get it done. Uh, yeah, yeah, we could, we could do something. Okay. I have a lot of samples of that wood left too. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, we could do both. Um, I mean, I, I've, I've actually. I've, I've inquired there before, and they've been willing to do some things, but it's been tough to get samples out of anyone. That's usually been the problem. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's usually it. I mean I've 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 done that before. I mean the overarching thing that the kind of I don't know just makes me cock my head like a dog at this whole case is, you know, we're talking 1952. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a year after the day the Earth stood still came out. A year after you know the thing from another world came out. I mean, so like the height of campy looking sci-fi stuff, and this thing looks exactly like a campy sci-fi movie. Um, I mean, it, the the head looks like an Edison light bulb. It's it's just. I mean, it's it looks like exactly what I would expect to see coming out of some kind of film like that. Do you? I mean, needless to say, there's physical evidence there, um, which is not to say that people didn't see something real or that something real wasn't there. The right. question is, to me, do you all subscribe to the idea that whatever manifestative thing that this was kind of relied on popular culture to kind of filter itself through to a, to manifest in such a way that it looked the way it looked based on our popular culture? Do you subscribe to any of that, or do you think this thing just happened to look like uh, something that should be on a bad Lost in Space episode. Well, actually, nothing has ever been seen. Uh, nothing was ever seen previous mm-hmm. or after this. This was like an isolated case. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting, and I go into explicit detail in my book, um, when Ailey Stewart was up there, he basically interrogated the hell out of those kids one-on-one. Mm-hmm. Um, HRS would not approve of the way he handled this. He was military himself. You know? right. Back then in those days, he put those kids under a hot light and badgered the hell out of them. And um, he explains it in, in, in the Shoot em Down book, how he separated them, and he tried um, the tactics of reverse psychology and said, right. well, so-and-so was lying, and you're lying. You're not telling me this. He didn't go in there like a mamby-pamby with a bunch of little kids. He was badgering the hell out of them. And I have um, sketches that were drawn by by five of the boys. Uh When you put all of these drawings together, these things are nearly identical from the five-year-old kid all the way, you know, working your way up all the different ages. And it's incredible 
how all these boys describe the same thing, where some of the hardcore evidence lies is what the government explained this as. Uh-huh. Okay, it's purely speculative. It, the eyes may have been those of an owl in a tree. Uh-huh. Underbrush may have given. If you if you analyze everything, it, it's all speculative. And then we have Colonel Levitt, who said the Air Force contacted him and told him to stay up there. Right. And I said, how long did they stay up here? Levitt was up there for a little while, set the troops up. You know, they had cordoned off the area. Then he split and went back down to Shearer Creek. Well, with the rest of his troops looking for that supposed airplane crash, I said, well, how long did the rest of your 50 to 60 troops stay up here? He said, well, they stayed the night in case something else was going to happen. So he was ordered by the United States Air Force to stay up there. You do not send 180 troops out into an area and cordon off an area in Flatwoods for an owl in a tree. And then the explanation (laughs) that was given of, um, you know, uh, a meteor scene for five to six seconds. And like I said, the, the hardcore proof is look on my map. And I have about 180 pages of Project Blue Book documents that explain all these UFOs that were seen flying across the country and all of these different states. You know, you, the Pentagon was contacted, an Air Force base, which was the Air Defense Command headquarters, the FBI, the United States Navy, government agencies, the Civil Aeronautics Administration. These things were seen for almost 24 hours with, with crap hitting the fan all over the country. So, like I said earlier in the show, this was not a little isolated incident. Flatwoods was basically towards the end. Okay. Of what I mean, had actually happened. I mean, I'm uh, I'm pretty relentless with some skeptics, and I think Joe Nickel uh, is the one who's who's published a little thing here online where. Oh yeah. <laughs> and I always like to point out uh, some of this work, some of this fine work done by these people. That that what they saw on the twelfth of September was most likely a meteor. That the red pulsating light was likely an aircraft navigation hazard beacon. And that the creature described by witnesses closely resembled a barn owl. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't. And I can just hear it now, you know, Commander. I don't know what we're going to do now. We've got a barn owl in Flatwoods Monster uh, territory. It's absurd. Well, the, and, and and of course, here's the other part: is that the over uh, encompassing issue here with the witness testimony and with what witnesses claim that they saw is that. Uh, uh, they were so dis- their perceptions were so distorted by their hysteria uh, that that this barn owl magically turned into a I don't know a mechanical suit that looks like it belongs in a sci-fi movie. Um, mm-hmm. It just doesn't. I mean, nothing about this jives at all because I mean they also tried to do the same thing with the Mothman story, which was to say. This is a bird or bat or some sort of thing like that. I'll tell you what I find interesting is I'm going to do some checking, but uh, I mean the first – this is going to be the first time that I've actually mentioned this uh, on the show or at all for that matter. In the state of Maryland where I live, there's a particular area of the northern part of the state that, number one, I've seen a lot of very strange things in. And number two, when I started to look into this stuff and I was running a business in that area, uh, my father was in the shop one day 
And a friend of his came in and said, Joe, you remember when we had that UFO crash, don't you? <laughs> and I looked at my dad and I'm like, what? <laughs> and apparently mm-hmm. at some point in the 50s, I, I thought dad had told me around 55, uh, in this very same area, there was what everybody in the, the local area called a UFO crash. The military was there. Flatbed trucks were there. They were hauling stuff out. I'm going to have to press that a little bit more and maybe talk to some people in that area to find out if this was, in fact, 1952 uh, mm-hmm. or around about in that area because, uh, you know, I, I, I'm reading this paper here on Flatwoods for some of the conventional explanations, and it says, September 12th, a meteor had been ser- observed across the three states, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia. So I have to wonder... Well, it- you know, One of it, the Baltimore papers here that I have, I have quite a few articles about the objects that were seen that night, uh-huh. and um, there's probably got to be tons of more of them out there. I could probably spend the rest of my life but tracking this down and looking through every little newspaper, but a Baltimore paper on the following day has a headline, Scores of Baltimoreans See Meteor-Like Object in Skies. Mm. And it's a gigantic article because one of the UFOs that night uh, made a, a flight sh- uh, shot going north-west uh, right over Baltimore. Okay. And um, there's a lot of stuff. The Washington, D.C. papers are filled with articles. Uh, if anybody up in that Baltimore and D.C. area, all you have to do is go into the libraries and look up a microfilm. Yeah. You'll find tons of articles about what was going on over over that portion of the country on uh, the 12th. That is just a weird case. I mean, it's just weird. Um, because like you say, I mean, there's not been anything seen like this since, uh, mm-hmm. or or before, for that matter. But, right. I mean, you, you look at the at this sketch that's on your homepage, and you can't escape the notion of this thing looks like, uh, you know, looks like a light bulb. It looks like, uh, I don't know, I mean, it looks... It looks like it's 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 a sci-fi movie sketch. I mean, that's just what it reminds you of uh, because you've got that Ace of Spades type shaped head with this clear plate glass window in the front of it with the you know the the red thing with the eyes and the eyes are shooting the beams out and all of that. I mean, it's just uh, it's like textbook well, for what you would think you know or what the people of the time would expect to see out of a an alien craft of some sort, which I find like really interesting in the overall scheme. The one thing that um, that I it was really hard for me. Okay, I grew up in Connecticut. Okay, mm-hmm. and the seventies and eighties, and then I moved down to Florida. But when I was working with the witnesses up there, they kept uh, most of them had passed away over the years now. But what they kept banging into my head, especially Stewart and Jack Davis, the two two older guys I work with, and Colonel Levitt talked about it a bit too. As you are talking, Central West Virginia, nineteen fifty-two. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you are talking not city slicker kids. No. As Stewart said, not punks. Right. These most of these people didn't have a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out. You know right. that expression. Sure. And they didn't have money to buy comic books. They didn't have TVs. There was only like two television sets in all of Braxton County. Braxton yeah. County's gigantic. I don't have the exact square footage, but like two TV sets in the whole county. Only a couple cars, a handful of radios. 
the people, the majority of them lived off the land. They had chickens, you know, they had eggs that, you know, the May family lived off of the land and a lot of bartering went on. This was not, you know, like, uh, the niceties that kids have today of video games and cell phones. These oh, yeah. people oh, yeah. were primarily yeah. poor and lived up in the backwoods. And Stuart really banged that into my head. He says, Frank, you, you're, you're more like a city slicker. He said, <laughs> you have to step back in time and you actually go into some of those back hollers and mountain places up in West Virginia. It's still like it was in the Civil War. There oh, yeah. are places up there that are like completely undeveloped. People are living in uh, huts with no with no floors and dirt floors, and and it's really scary what what it's like up there in, in some parts. But this section here uh, it basically still looks the same. You can see along the outskirts near the turnpike where um you know it's it's starting to build up and there's hotels and there's mcdonald's but you get deep into some of those places and there's still not a lot going on this is what stewart was really getting into my head frank central west virginia 1952 was not metropolis these kids had nothing and to get a bunch of kids and interview them and interrogate the hell out of them and they all explained and drew and told the same exact story. He yeah. says really blew him away. Uh, Jack Davis told me the same thing. Um, you know, and it was hard for me at the beginning until I started hanging out up there and becoming friends with the people. Everybody's telling me the same thing. You know, like this wasn't there. There was no McDonald's. There was not even a turnpike there. Right. Yet there was approximately 10,000 people who flocked into that town. That's how big this story hit. It wow. was amazing because there were so many witnesses. This wasn't one or two people. You're talking a bunch of little kids. Yeah. Up, you know, from six up to, up to uh, Gene Lemon was 18. Well, he was actually considered an adult. And Mrs. May. And they were visibly scared of what they saw. Now, the one thing everybody always laughs about is these kids grew up in that area they played on that farm for their whole lives like they're not going to know what it, an owl look like right <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah, these, these kids played up there they hunted they played uh you know cops and robbers they played cowboys and indians they were up there that was their life up on that farm and then they would play football down on the local playground so they that's all they knew yeah, I mean, I, I think the, I think the unfortunate part about it is that it's. I mean, admittedly, it's a really early case. This is fifty two. Um, right. I mean, my and, and my know, mom grew up in in Clarksburg, West Virginia, and she remember. I was talking to her about it today, and I said, "Do you remember hearing about this as a kid?" She's like, "Oh yeah, yeah, I remember that. That's a big yeah, to do." And story. and then it went away, and then life went on as normal. And um, I mean, unfortunately, you know, it, it, it's just one of those things where. Um, and I mean, it certainly doesn't disparage the work that you've done on. I mean, you, you decidedly have probably done more than anyone else on this case. But you know, we we had uh, uh, a psychologist uh, professor on here a few episodes ago, and he was talking about the nature of memory and the nature of what you remember and and all of that. And I, I don't know. He 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 talked about how inaccurate memories can be. Um, but I don't know when it comes to really traumatic events, I feel like those kind of events kind of get burned in 
I mean, unfortunately, we just didn't have the resources back then like we do now to put people in the field to, I don't know, to, to kind of cordon off a field and do a grid search with volunteers to, to gather evidence, to have stuff analyzed. All that stuff was kind of missing from back then. And, and maybe we could have learned something a lot more from this uh, if, if we'd had better resources at the time. But this is 1952. I mean, this isn't uh, – this isn't that long after Roswell, for God's sakes. I mean, yeah, you know, it's it's, it's tough. Everyday occurrence, but there's yeah. still got to be a lot of people out there who grab that stuff off at a farm, who have it sitting in a, a cookie jar or a shoe box under oh, the bed. Man, yeah, you, certainly you the metal know. would be good. Yeah, I mean, the metal would the be metal in that black piece. You know, it it was reported. Um, talking about memories and stuff. Here's something that a uh, little article that. Uh, pushed aside and forgotten about. This uh, article appeared um, Monday morning on September 15th. The incident happened on the 12th, okay? This article titled uh, Braxton Monster Left Skid Marks Where He Landed, mm-hmm. okay? Here's a quote the, uh, of what the, they called it the Phantom of Flatwoods before it got the, the monster name. It looked like a mechanical man, was 10 feet tall, 4 feet wide, had a blood-red face, sported a black spade-like cowl which extended a foot or more above its head, and it had eyes about the size of half dollars. And that was in the Charleston Gazette three days after. What happened is when May... Lemon and Stewart went on the We the People show um, on the 19th of September, actually one week to the date of the incident. Uh-huh. An illustrator drew the wrong picture of the monster. Okay. He drew it in a dress. What Mrs. May was trying to describe is that lower torso with the, um, which reminded her of the pleats. Pleats, of, yeah. Uh, okay, and it's hanging drapes. She was talking about pipes. Okay. The artist yeah. took it literally and made it into a dress. You see how it flares out that dress type thing? Right, right. What she, what Freddie said is what mom was trying to describe. Now, here's a little bit of what we were talking about. Um, she didn't know how to describe that thing. So the nearest thing that a housewife of 52 could describe is it looked like the pleats hanging from <laughs> in, in right, the, the yeah. drapes. You know, and and that's how the artist drew it. It may not all be his fault because she's trying to explain something she had never seen before. So he drew right. this damn thing in a dress. And right. Freddie said later on, he said, Frank, we're talking about pipes. He said this thing was massive. He says it was about four feet across at the bottom, and it was like a basically a big booster rocket. It was a machine. Huh. And... um you know what I said earlier with the cowl going over the top of its head. And right, right, right. And um, the, what they were trying to describe that the the illustrators do, drew bulging, scary eyes coming out of it. They were portholes. Right. It was like something like an inner helmet, you know, protective device. And what the illustrator had drawn, these um, arms and claws were actually uh, like some type of antennas. Antenna okay. sticking out of the sh- the shoulder plane, 
God only knows what they were used for. If, if yeah. it's an interstellar craft, it sure as hell is cramped quarters. So, uh, I mean, that's for damn sure. But, uh, I, Frank, I think it's where we, uh, I think it's where we leave it for now. Uh, unless right, Jeremy, good. you got, what do you got there, Jer? Uh, no, I think we're good. You, you promised us an hour and you gave us just about two. So yeah. thank you. <laughs> it's uh, a very weird uh, case. Give us your book How and your you website gonna... one more time too. Uh, uh, my website is www.flatwoodsmonster.com, and I have a lot of uh, new uh, photographs and illustrations and pictures up on my website. And if you look under current information, you'll find a whole page of uh, new pictures up there. So I enjoyed doing the show, guys. Yes. Thank you. And the book is uh, Shoot Them Down, right? Shoot Them Down, The Flying Saucer Air Wars in 1952. Great. Thank you so much for doing this, and congratulations on uh, getting on Monster Quest. Whether they got the entire story right or not, they, they did a pretty good job, yeah? Yeah, they did a pretty good job. There were some inconsistencies and uh, a lot of glamorization, but um, there was a few parts there that they hit right. And the rest of it, <laughs> if TV. you want to read the, the 100%, <laughs> yeah, some of the sensationalized uh but if you want to read the true 100% story, you could read it in the book or you could see the photographs and my illustrations um, that I worked with the witnesses of what this thing actually looked like on my website. Great. Well, thank you again, sir. This is Colin Andrews, and you're listening to Paratopia. Ah, uh, the Jeff. Yes, Jeremy. How are you? Good, thank you. I um, it's interesting. I, in private conversation, tried to ask him sort of what I think you were asking him toward the end, and I don't think he really got it either time. Which is, no. do you think this could be anything other than a nuts and bolts spaceship from another planet? Right. Um, and when I look at the uh, the fact that this was a UFO hotspot in the area. And when I look at the fact that this creature showed no fear emotion, yeah, sure. It's nine feet tall, but presumably it just crashed on a, an unknown planet or something. Right. You know, I mean, right. there's that. And there's the fact that it is um, toxic to the environment and yet it's not wearing a helmet. So presumably it's breathing our air. Right. Um, I, I, I take all of that together and I go, Hmm. Probably not from another planet. Maybe interdimensional, crypto-terrestrial, some other explanation. Who the hell knows? Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it looks like a it looks like a bad sci-fi movie. I mean, it just does. And uh, I, I don't know. I mean, again, it's, it's like I said. If we had more resources to have covered this better at the time, you probably could have got a lot more information out. But I, I, I'm going to kind of ping around Johns Hopkins and see if they're willing to analyze any of the material samples and if i can secure somebody to do that then i'll certainly contact frank about obtaining some of that and getting it checked out because uh, that certainly would be, would be interesting to see what it is but uh i don't know the, the way the tree was described to me sounds like termites or some kind of mite i mean do you, you find know. it odd at all that nobody's like all right we've got a cordon off the area and only wear radiation suits yeah, I mean, it just I mean, doesn't... did he say uh, a dog died? I mean, a dog died, right? <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. And this thing's spewing gas and oil and has a monster in it. 
you yeah. want to put on the suit. It touches I mean, the car hood and it, it destroys the enamel. And, and, and let me just say this because I want to get more hate mail. This is ridiculous. <laughs> well, it is I ridiculous. Hate- it is ridiculous, but it's no more ridiculous than what you would expect out of this phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean ridiculous doesn't equal not real. It just equals right, No, absolutely not. It just equals, equals ridiculous. I mean, it's uh, I mean, it's got a it's got a head like a Dairy Queen's, you know, ice cream cone. <laughs> you know, let's look up let's look up Dairy Queen and see what year that came out. When did Dairy Queen originate? Because <laughs> I'm thinking. You know, this it, looks an awful light like a Dairy Queen sign. It would be really funny <laughs> if if the the more technologically advanced we get, and the more we evolve answers and say, "Oh, that wasn't lace doilies; that was uh, some sort of ship, or that wasn't right. hands; that was some sort of antenna." It would be funny if to go back and see that it actually was uh, lace doilies and hands. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's uh, it's a weird looking thing, and if it's an alien craft of some sort. Like I said, that's cramped quarters. <laughs> I mean, what do you do traveling across interstellar space in that little thing if you're this big monster and you're in this, this? I mean, what? <laughs> what? Yeah. Maybe it was some, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't know, multi-dimensional Einstein traveling in his uh, little time machine thing. I mean, who the hell knows? But uh, I like the idea that that there was a UFO wave going on and that. There's separate from that is this interdimensional thing that latched onto it and pretended to be part of it. Well, oh, I'm going oh. to go way out there. I'm going to go with that one. <laughs> okay. Well, it seems just about any answer could be right because it's ridiculous. <laughs> uh, now, do we want to talk about uh, next week's show? Yeah. Yeah. The, the 60th episode of Paratopia. 6-0. Um, so needless to say, it will be special. Oh, it'll be special, all right? It will be huge. There will be I don't blood. think we should say who the guest is. Really? I don't know. What do you think? Hmm. We tell who the guest is, we get giant ratings. That doesn't matter, because we don't make money off this. <laughs> so... <laughs> no. Oh, the hell with it. It's Emma Woods. Oh, that's right. Uh, yes, Emma Woods will be on. Much to her Amazingly chagrin. enough. Yes. <laughs> Amazingly enough. And we have asked her everything, and I do mean everything. It was a no oh, yeah. barred interview. Yeah. And, um, you'll get to hear it for yourself, and then we will not editorialize, but perhaps we will talk a bit about it, um, as a pre-chat on episode 61. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, we didn't editorialize the questions really either. We asked her questions that I think everybody would want answered about her case and about what's happened to her since. And I don't think that we we really didn't freeze any opinions at her. It was pretty much just a straight, no-holds-barred questionnaire in which we learned some new stuff, I think, some yeah. new, new new portions to this, which I are deepening the the issue um, of, of regression hypnosis being used at all in right. this. Uh, I will say this. Um, she was completely nervous and, oh, yeah. um, and that comes through, but also in, in terms of just people saying like her voice is weird or whatever. I mean, it turns out that she has what amounts to an allergic disorder that makes her lethargic. So I think that also accounts for, Especially in that tape eight when she's confronting David Jacobs and she's like, yeah, mm-hmm, yeah. I mean, I think she's 
sort of perpetually in that state because it's to the point where she doesn't work. She is on, you know, for all intents and purposes, disability uh, for this. Yeah. Yeah, well, well, she's she's one of those people that you've heard about probably that are allergic to just about everything, dust, uh, pollen. I mean, li- literally. I mean, they're they're and that what her dis- disorder is? Yeah, is that smoke. She's allergic smoke, to I mean, so many things her. that it's very hard to exist in the outside world for her. So. And the reaction is that she gets lethargic. Now you, right. you you piece that together with, well, gee, I guess she would be the best hypnotizable subject ever. Yeah. Um, and then I was thinking, isn't it odd? You know, she also talks about the sleep disorder she has, which makes her wake up and do things in her sleep, like, you know, write emails and walk around the house and that sort of thing. Strange reversal there. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like she's got a sleep disorder that makes her wake up and she's got a wake time disorder that puts her to sleep. And, you know, <laughs> you know, maybe this whole hybrid thing that the fact that she was able to, to be led down that path, uh, allegedly, I guess we still have to say that, right? Sure. By Jacobs. Yeah. You know, maybe that's due to just her brain trying to give her life in a sense, or give her um, some sense of excitement, given the situation of her Who knows? allergy. I don't yeah. know, but I, it's just something to chew on. I'll, I'll I'll throw this out there that I used to work with an experiencer, I don't know, a decade ago or more that um, was U.S. military, and she was very much like Emma. She had food allergies to just about everything. She carried around a, a cooler uh, with food that she could eat in it. <laughs> I mean, that's how bad it was. And she had extraordinarily bad allergies that she actually attributed to the experience. Mm-hmm. So make of that what you will. Now, I, I think that we should also, and let's just maybe end it on this note, unless you've got anything else. Um, I think Jeff and I are in agreement that Having talked to her at length, um, it's safe to say she most likely, and I'll say is, also an experiencer at the end of it all. She's an experiencer who went to David Jacobs and ended up with a scenario that didn't actually fit the description of her experiences. Yeah, I mean, I... Uh, I'm. I don't know that I can say definitively, but I'll say that she has all the hallmarks to me of someone that I would want to look at closer and talk to more about her own experiences, which we did get into quite a bit with her uh, on the show. But uh, I don't. I don't know that I can definitively say she's an experiencer. I. Th- I would. I would feel comfortable in, in spending time trying to find that out. But uh, she certainly has some of the hallmarks. Uh, and I'll also say this, you know, before next week, because like, like we said, there is no editorializing afterwards or an after chat. But just in speaking with her at length, both on the air and off the air, uh, she seemed to be altogether a grounded person. She didn't seem crazy or unstable. She didn't babble incoherently. <laughs> she had a sense of humor. I mean, she seemed like a very normal, nice person, actually. So I think the the banter that's being thrown around about uh, being crazy, at least I mean I'm I've spoken to her, so I can say she certainly didn't seem that way to me. I'm no therapist, I'm no psychologist, but just going from a you know first blush approach to that, I would say she seemed very very kind, cordial, very nervous about talking about coming on the show. But aside from that, uh, nice lady. Yeah, and, and then let's look at the people who are calling her crazy. <laughs> well, there's that. Yeah. So that's nice. But also, here's one thing that I wanted to say this week uh, in, in addition to that. Within two weeks, I have drafted up a letter that I'm going to send to 
all of the different psychological boards that I can find that is a question. And that question is, why is hypnotherapy, if it is such a dangerous or potentially dangerous practice, why is it not more regulated than it is? Why do we have practitioners who seem not to fall underneath of any specific hardcore training uh, and then we have it being used by psychologists who, spend, who can spend eight years or more in school get, getting educated on the, the inner workings of the human psyche and, and employing that technique in their work. Why is this not more regulated? How is it possible that people who have no training in it, especially other than maybe a, I don't know, a videotape or going to a lecture or going to a workshop, why are these people not falling under some sort of practicing without a license type deal. Why is that not going on? What is the, what is the legalities behind using this and not having any kind of certi- certification whatsoever? Um, because I think, to be honest with you, I think it was uh, Barbara Lamb, who's another proponent of regression hypnotherapy. I believe she actually has workshops where she teaches people how to do this, if I'm not wrong. I don't know. I find that to be really... Wow, just really out there, and and I uh, and I may be wrong about her, but you can check her site and see. But I, you know, I've heard tell of other people doing that across the board. So that's 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 the gist of the letter: is why is this not more regulated? Why is this not being moved upon? And and why is this still in uh, in widespread practice with among practitioners? While it seems to be rather frowned upon on by the psychological community, that's the question I have. So hopefully in the next couple of weeks, I'll get some replies that we can read on show 61. Yes, and on show 61, I will share my crazy journey <laughs> to, uh, to Jeff's house over the weekend and uh, how that might tie into Emma Woods in some strange way. I'll just let that hang. Dun, dun, dun. Pandemia. 